talked about responsibility and community, and, and much less on the other end of the spectrum, which some people think of uh, uh, in terms of you know, rugged individualism and each everyone out for oneself. Uh, and this new book, I, I read it in advance copy, but now it's in hardback too, uh, is, is really wonderful. It, it combines uh, autobiography, uh, history, uh, political science, uh, cultural analysis, uh, and, and a lot of discussion about values. And especially, you know, focuses on what it means to be a Chinese American, uh, particularly at this time as China is rising. And whether we like to think of this or not, many people think America may be in some kinds of relative decline. And ultimately, in his questions about what it means to be Chinese American, I think he offers extraordinary insights, frankly, about what it means to be American. It's, it's, it's insightful, it's, it's funny, uh, and I really very strongly recommend it. Um, let me start, other than wondering how you have time to write so many books while doing all the other <laughs> things you do, uh, let's just start with a title um, uh, and also why you wrote this book now, but A Chinaman's Chance. I mean, we, we all are familiar, I think, with a phrase. I don't know, many of us know where it comes from. I always think of it as the, about you know, the odds my favorite baseball team will make it to the World Series, meaning none. So, so, so where does that come from, and why did you write this book now? Uh, well, Elliot, first of all, thank you so much for um, hosting this and uh, having me here, and thanks to all of you for uh, coming out today. This is really uh, just a delight to be in this Aspen environment and having the kinds of conversations that we're all part of. And I hope that um, the conversation that we have will just spur uh, one that can become room-wide uh, before yeah, We're going to open it up to all of you. <clears throat> before our hour is up. Uh, I, I um, You know, this book, A Chinaman's Chance, uh, is uh, kind of the convergence of a few passions. Um, as you say, a lot of the work that I do is exploring the meaning of, an Amer of American identity. What does it mean uh, to claim this country? And that's something I've been thinking about essentially all my life and writing about for the better part of two decades. Um, but it's also just on a personal level um, the uh, result of a strong desire that I had as my daughter, who's 15, started getting to the age where uh, my word was no longer the word of God. Um, uh, to begin to record some things about what it is that um, was transmitted to me and what it is that I am trying, you know, with some mixed results to transmit to her about her cultural heritage and identity. Uh, and that confluence of uh, a larger civic passion for exploring this question um, of who is us uh, with this personal motivation really uh, made this a, a work of passion. Um, uh, to write. The title, A Chinaman's Chance, <clears throat> is a phrase that uh, has its origins actually in some ways from this part of the country. Um, uh, when Chinese immigrants first started coming to the United States in significant numbers uh, to uh, lay the railroads down, to mine the mountains, uh, to search for gold here, um, they were often given these uh, uh, poor, uh, often illiterate laborers, uh, often given the most thankless, dangerous, uh, brutal tasks, um, literally human canaries and coal mines, right? Um, and so the figure of speech just emerged uh, that, uh, um, you know, you had a Chinaman's chance of surviving, uh, you know, being sent into that mine or being sent into that uh, uh, particular uh, task. And it's a, it's, it's a phrase that uh, over the years uh, not only became embedded into the wider American lexicon, but of course has uh, taken on a bit of a negative connotation. Uh, one of the deliberate choices that I made in titling the book so uh, was in a sense to provoke 
Um, there are a lot of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans who would just as soon never have the phrase a Chinaman's chance uttered again um, because it, uh, it is bound up with a time when uh, Chinese in this country were, were persecuted uh, often mercilessly. Uh, but that was precisely why I felt like it was important to, in a sense, uh, reclaim it, appropriate it, uh, grab it. Um, and, uh, and that's the philosophical answer. But quite frankly, the, the family personal answer is that my dad, uh, my dad was an immigrant. Um, he was born in China, went to Taiwan, came to the United States in the 50s. Um, and uh, he had a very wry sense of humor. Um, and it really pleased him when he learned this phrase, a Chinaman's chance. Uh, and, and he loved with a very kind of perverse, ironic humor to use it all the time and to use it in prosaic situations like the chance of your baseball team winning or even, the, you know, the chance of us getting to the grocery store before it closed. You know, oh, we, you got a Chinaman's chance of getting there on time, you know. Uh, and he just kind of loved writing that out. And, uh, you know, and I think I learned a lot from him about um, what it means to claim a thing that was meant to be used against you um, and by so claiming it to uh, you know, change its meaning and its content. And, uh, in a way, that's sort of the underlying message of a lot of the book. As you said, Elliot, you know, we, we sit here at a moment right now um, where, for me, the exploration of what it means to be Chinese-American is not just some solipsistic, navel-gazing exercise. I think you know, we are in this moment where we are in an age of China and America. We are in an age of China versus America. Right? And, uh, and that kind of tension, uh, you know, the, the frenemies and coopetition and all these words that are used out there for this mixture of, uh, uh, of dependency and resentment that is emerging between these two countries plays out in a hundred ways every day for Chinese Americans in this country. Uh, and I think one of the ways that I think um, all of us have to become mindful and why these stories in this book um, are, for most of the people in this room who are not, in fact, of Chinese ethnicity, why they are your stories uh, is fundamentally this, that America thrives and America will thrive to the extent that Chinese Americans thrive, to the extent that Chinese Americans in this moment can show the world and this country, of course, that this is a place where people of Chinese ethnicity can have unmatched opportunity, unmatched ability to find their full potential and their full voice, um, then that's, that's our story. That's our national story and our national imperative right now. <clears throat> we'll come back to the, the moment in time we are now uh, and the rise of China, but, but we'll also come back, by the way, you talk about your 15-year-old daughter. We're going to come oh, yeah. back to tiger <laughs> parenting, too, so you can tell us a little bit about what you think about that. Um, but let's take a minute and talk to us about, about the history of, of Chinese in America. And in some respects, some people look at Chinese Americans and think of them almost as the model success story. Uh, yet, as you noted, the path for Chinese in American history has not been an easy one, the Exclusion Act, what you talked about. So t tell us a little bit about, about the evolution of the Chinese American experience in the United States and why then some people now would think of the Chinese Americans as a model minority. Well, I'll start with the, the, the last thought there. Um, th this phrase, model minority, um, for some of you may, be well, you may be well familiar with it. For others, uh, you may be hearing it for the first time. And, and, and this is a phrase, apply, a term applied uh, not just to Chinese Americans, but to Asian Americans in general uh, over the last few decades. Um, and, and it's a, a great example in the very complex you know, ethnic, racial politics and cultural politics of our country. Uh, it's an example of what I would call uh, uh, damnation by high praise, um, where, where 
Um, people talk about, boy, you know, these Asian kids, these Chinese kids, they're, they're, they're like machines. They're like, you know, they're, they're crushing it. They're valedictorians. They're, you know, getting all, all these scholarships. They're taking over our campuses. And, you know, uh, and, and, and the undertone of that kind of narrative uh, is, holy cow, America's getting taken over, right? Holy cow, we, which is to say mainly white Americans, are under a bit of kind of competition or threat here. And holy cow, this is, a, this is, a, um, this is something to be worried about, right? Uh, and so that phrase uh, is one that uh, uh, a lot of Asian Americans and Chinese Americans um, uh, re regard with uh, um, you know, great wariness, uh, uh, and, uh, number one. But number two, it happens to be the case that the phrase is even misleading about the demographic facts. Um, China, there are four million plus Chinese Americans today. Uh, we are the largest of uh, the different Asian uh, ethnicities in the country. And as some of you may have seen uh, just this week, there were headlines showing that Asian immigration has now kind of been steadily surpassing Hispanic immigration uh, to the United States. Uh, and so our whole notions of what the immigration debate uh, is and is going to be uh, in this country are, are about to shift uh, in some ways. Uh, but even though there are people, frankly, like me, whose parents came here with education and not zero resource, uh, and who were they, therefore able to bestow to my generation opportunity to go to school and to get, to, you know, and to end up here, right, uh, in a conversation like this, um, th that, that is the picture that is often painted of Chinese Americans. Uh, and there are, to be sure, I mean, I'm here, there are Chinese Americans who fit that picture. Uh, but the community in general is kind of, de demographers sometimes describe it as kind of a barbell community, a lopsided barbell community. There, there, there are, um, Chinese Americans do have a high median income, higher than the American average, higher than the Asian American average. Um, at the same time, there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese Americans in poverty today who are essentially invisible and uh, not part of the, co the, the, the national narrative about race and class. Uh, and some of them are migrants who've arrived just today, uh, but some of them are stuck in intergenerational poverty um, in Chinatowns and in other communities uh, around this country. Um, the history, just in 30 seconds, <laughs> um, you know, is a history, as I alluded to, that uh, uh, started a long time ago, a century and a half ago. Uh, and uh, it's not just a, a matter of kind of oh, curiosity, like, oh, in 1850-whatever, you know, the first Chinese-American showed up here, and in 1840-whatever, the first Chinese-American graduated from an American college, and wh whatever it might be. Um, but it's also, as I try to say in the book, as a matter of our culture, as a matter of our laws, as a matter of our, the story we tell of ourselves in this country, Chinese-Americans have been shaping the American story for most of that 150 years. Um, and I'll give you, uh, you know, one example uh, that's tied to a lot of our immigration debates today. Um, some of you who've been following the immigration debates know that uh, a lot of restrictionists in that debate uh, who, who fear the influx of immigrants uh, at our border um, often um, uh, bemoan the arrival of what they call anchor babies, uh, if that phrase means anything to you. The idea that parents are crossing the border illegally here so that they can have babies on American soil. And because under the Constitution, if you're born on our soil, you are a citizen here. And now their kids are anchored here as citizens, and they can kind of bring in the rest of the family, right? That, that, that is um, uh, the, the immigration debate's the equivalent of an urban myth. Um, it, it happens more than zero, but it doesn't happen nearly as much as uh, our uh, cultural politics would, ha would have you believe. Well, this whole idea of this debate about anchor babies and essentially birthright citizenship, whether being born here 
should entitle you to citizenship uh, is an argument that began with a Chinese migrant, a fellow named Wang Kim Ark, <clears throat> who uh, actually was born in the United States, born in San Francisco, was a cook, uh, and he went to visit his family in 18, uh, six, 1882, I think, or 1884, um, uh, visit his family in China. When he tried to come back to the United States, he wasn't let in. Why? Because in 1882, this country had passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first uh, instance, uh, and in many ways, unless you consider the expansion of the Chinese Exclusion Act to other Asian ethnicities, the first and only time in this republic's history that people had been barred from entry simply on the basis of their race. If that had been encoded into our laws, right? So in 1882, that law had been passed. And so when he came back from his family visit, uh, they wouldn't let him in at the port. And they said, on, on the grounds that he was a Chinese subject to exclusion. And he said, I, I was born here. I, I'm American. Uh, and he ended up getting lawyers. And this case made it up uh, ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and in 1890, in the case Wong Kim Ark versus United States, the court read the language of, the, of Section 1 of the, first, of the 14th Amendment. All persons born in the United States shall be citizens of the United States. Period. Right? And uh, no, no matter what the anti-Chinese sentiment of that era was, which was sentiment that was grown out of labor unrest and uh, resentment of a lot of working class whites against these poorer, cheaper Chinese laborers who were being brought in to keep costs down and do the dirty work, um, in this era of anti-Chinese resentment and riots and everything else like that, it didn't matter. The 14th Amendment said what it said, and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, sided with Wong Kim Ark. So that principle of birthright citizenship uh, enshrined in the Constitution and, uh, and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, uh, the question was forced by a Chinaman. The question was forced by a Chinese-American, right? And that's just one instance that I write about in the book that most people don't know or think about of the ways in which um, not just uh, our, our national story has been shaped, but how it reverberates still today uh, in our politics and our culture. So, Eric, what, what does the remarkable rise of China mean to Chinese Americans? What kind of feelings does it engender? Is, is it anxiety? Is it pride? Is, what, what are the feelings? As and, and, and it's really just the last 20 years with this remarkable development. Has it changed how Chinese Americans think of themselves, think of China, think of their heritage? I, I would say so. I mean, I think that uh, um, you, you can't help but see the emergence of China uh, in this way if you are a Chinese American and feel a little bit of, okay, those are my people, right? <laughs> uh, and, they, and they are no longer um, the sick man of Asia. They are no longer... Um, you know, a, a, a stagnant, static society that, uh, uh, that the United States can just uh, look down on and dismiss. Uh, and so there is a certain measure of pride, I suppose. There is certainly, for a lot of Chinese Americans, um, a, a sense of opportunity, um, whether in business or in education or in arts or in uh, wor you know, work. Just uh, An opportunity meaning going back? Going back or being a bridge builder or, um, you know, if you happen to be um, a young professional or in, uh, you know, getting your education right now and you're Chinese-American and you're fluent in China, uh, you suddenly have a lot more interesting global job options than you did 20 years ago, right? Uh, and you are in demand in ways that you might not have been uh, t even 10 years ago. Uh, and so there's an opportunity piece of this. Uh, but I think um, there is also uh, a, a sense or at least a, a, a wariness 
uh, about the possibility of being uh, of menace or discrimination of discrimination, right? The sense that um, because China is rising at a time when uh, America is um, at, a, at a minimum not rising um, and, and perhaps even declining in some ways, um, you know, the, the the history of Chinese and Asian Americans uh, in this country is that pretty much every time, uh, uh, if you think back to the Second World War, if you think back to the 1980s, when Japan was rising, um, Japanese Americans suffered. It's kind of that simple, right? Uh, in, in the case of World War II, um, they suffered in the most uh, uh, you know, obvious and extreme ways of internment and, and being rounded up and, uh, and, and having their citizenship essentially shredded um, uh, during the duration of internment. Uh, but if you think about the 1980s, um, and a period where we kind of forget now, because Japan is a little bit the stagnant uh, you know, man of Asia today, uh, we forget that Japan in the 1980s was going to take over and become number one, right? Uh, and there was all this fear uh, in America, and therefore all this discrimination against not just Japanese Americans, but Asian Americans in general. Um, uh, I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name Vincent Chin. But Vincent Chin uh, is a Chinese American who in 1982 uh, outside of Detroit, born and raised in Detroit, in the Detroit area, um, happened to have the bad luck to walk past some bar after closing time uh, where two recently laid off white auto workers uh, were really mad. And they were really mad about having lost their jobs. They were really mad about Japan's rise. And they saw this guy who looked to them, for all intents and purposes, Japanese. They didn't know that he was Chinese-American. Uh, and they beat him to death. Right? Uh, the, the, the death of Vincent Chin is um, uh, kind of you know, held up in sort of a totemic warning way uh, among Asian Americans, uh, you know, that when, uh, there's, when times get tough or when there's a sense of threat from Asia, um, Asian Americans and Chinese Americans have to be watchful uh, for a rise in discrimination. Uh, Wen Ho Lee, who you may remember, was the uh, uh, American um, nuclear scientist who worked uh, in this part of the country at Los Alamos uh, Nuclear Laboratory. Uh, an immigrant from China via Taiwan, just like my parents, just about the age of my parents, um, who in a, in a period when uh, suddenly the United States got worried that China's nuclear capabilities had suddenly made a, uh, an unexplainable leap uh, and that they'd gotten way better in their nu nuclear weaponry uh, capacities, uh, Win Ho Lee ended up becoming the focus of this two-year, essentially, witch hunt uh, by the federal government. Uh, and he was held, uh, he was six, at that time, you know, late 60s, uh, a little guy, he was held in solitary confinement, shackled, um, and, uh, uh, and accused of, you know, 80-some counts of espionage. Um, in the end, all those counts were dropped, but one count were uh, of mishandling papers in some kind of official way. Uh, he wasn't a spy. He was an American. He was a loyal American, right? But I think one of the things that happens in times like this, when an Asian country rises, when China rises, um, uh, a, a shifting perception uh, takes place where people start to see someone with my face, right? And they, you know, 20 years ago, you might have seen my face and you might have just thought American, or you might not have. But uh, today, there's just much more heightened sense when people without, people who are not Chinese, not Asian, see my face, where there's just a hesitation longer of foe or friend. Chinese? American? Is there a difference between Chinese and Chinese-American? And, you know, the, the, again, I don't mean to uh, uh, elevate this to the level of, uh, 
you know, we are being discriminated against uh, at the levels of Japanese internment or anything like that. But I think th this is one of these moments right now where, as a Chinese-American, I and others um, are just more attuned to the possibility of this kind of, of the reverberating effects of uh, this threat feeling. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that's something that I, you know, ask us all to be watchful for. Um, and uh, certainly one of the points of the book uh, is to remind us that, um, uh, you know, this is what goes around comes around in this, right? Uh, people who even vaguely, um, remotely uh, uh, look like they might be from the part of the country that sent people over to uh, uh, do us harm on 9-11, uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, um, not only were faced with discrimination, but uh, uh, as my friend Anand here, um, in his book, uh, uh, true, The True American, uh, re recounts uh, people who uh, 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 even vaguely looked like they were from that part of the world became subject to discrimination, to hate crimes, to violence, um, uh, and, and so forth. And so um, th this underlying reality that we are a diverse country and that our greatest asset is the ability to take um, people from other parts of the world and fuse and integrate their voices, their ideas, their identities, their character, their values into the American enterprise is something that we have to nurture, and we nurture that by making sure that in times of anxiety here, uh, we don't start looking at people like me um, as if um, I was presumed foreign until proven otherwise. We'll, we'll come back to that, and you know, perhaps America's greatest virtue being that. Mm -hmm. um, you, you describe a, a Chinese-American way, uh, you know, re reflected um, by second-generation Chinese-Americans like you as something that, that, that has some meaning to it and that perhaps can be emulated. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and also whether that somehow has roots as you see it in Confucianism, Taoism. I mean, what, what is it and, and where does it come from? So one of the things that I think is, um, you know, when we talk about in this country one of our great cliches, and I'm, I'm glad it's become a cliche, it's better than uh, not having it out there at all, is celebrate diversity, right? Uh, and we, we talk about celebrating diversity, and that's awesome. Uh, but I actually think it's not diversity that we should celebrate. It's what we choose to make of diversity that we celebrate. I mean, the, the mere inert demographic facts that there are so many of this kind and so many of that kind, um, you know, in, in our population is nothing unless we find ways to activate, again, what it is that people of these different groups and backgrounds and traditions can bring to the table. Uh, and, uh, and so the Chinese-American way uh, that I describe in this book uh, is this fusion of styles, uh, of cultural styles, of, uh, of mores, of values and ethics uh, that, um, you know, you can... To the extent that American identity uh, is so focused on the individual and so focused on um, putting oneself out there, so focused on um, selling oneself in a way, right? That, that, that's the American way. Uh, and this belief in constant reinvention uh, where there's no tradition older than 10 minutes ago, right? And uh, I mean, we're the only country in the world where when you, you, know, you, you, say, you say the words, that's history, to mean something's irrelevant, right? Uh, uh, in other countries, that's history means that's something you ought to pay attention to, right? Uh, uh, and, and so these aspects of the American character um, are, are, you know, have great, deep, long roots. And one of the, uh, the, the things that, uh, that you see, I, I happen to be just uh, right now reading this wonderful book by Nathaniel Philbrick um, called Mayflower, 
uh, and, uh, and I just read a book of his called Bunker Hill. Uh, and to read about kind of the early formation uh, of this country uh, is to see all the ways in which so many norms and ethics um, that we now shorthand as don't tread on me, um, you know, had their seed and their origins uh, in those times and in the people who came here and the reasons why they came here. Uh, so, so there is sort of a cultural DNA on that side. On the Chinese side, uh, what I write about and explore, and in some ways search out, right, because as a second generation son of immigrants, I have already, uh, I'm already at a remove from that cultural heritage, right? Uh, my, my, my command of the language is only so-so. Um, I can understand conversation, but I'm only half proficient in speaking, and my reading is, you know, at child's level. Um, and so um, it's more in the ways that my parents raised me and my extended family um, behaved and that people in the Chinese-American community where I grew up behaved um, uh, that, that I've had the sense. And, of course, later on, the opportunity to study and to think about and to go to China. But when you kind of do a shorthand of China in contrast to everything I was describing about kind of the American character, uh, you know, it won't surprise you. I mean, these are things that are almost cliche now. But, you know, the, in contrast to the individualism, uh, the rugged individualism of American identity, um, you know, is a mutualism and a communitarianism uh, in Chinese identity, right? Um, uh, in contrast to the um, that's history, meaning, you know, forget about the past, uh, is a deep sense of not only rootedness to the past, but in a sense definition by the past, right? Uh, in contrast to um, the American way of sell, 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 and put yourself out there and fake it till you make it, um, uh, is a Chinese way that is much more, you know, about valuing uh, uh, modesty and not putting yourself forward and, um, uh, and being attuned um, to the, you know, what everybody else is feeling and thinking and worrying about before you put yourself out there uh, in any way, right? Uh, and um, obviously, both of these uh, have their strengths and weaknesses, right? Um, the, uh, I, I will keep on referring you to uh, Anand Girdardas' uh, book, The True American, which is a... Raise your uh, hand, Anand, so I don't... Know. Um, which is a book... Which is a book that uh, tells the story uh, of a Bangladeshi immigrant who was working at a convenience store um, uh, in, uh, outside of Dallas, um, and a... Uh, essentially neo-Nazi uh, uh, angry young white guy who um, uh, was on a mission to punish the kinds of people who'd done us harm after 9-11, uh, decided to come uh, to the store, see the guy, and, uh, um, and shot him in the face um, and killed two others. Um, and the story, which is gripping and powerful just as a, as a story um, of what happened after that. The guy shot in the face survived um, uh, and chose uh, in indeed to... Um, as a matter of mercy, in a sense, uh, purposeful redemption to, um, to uh, be befriend the man who had shot him and to help him um, uh, avoid uh, the death penalty. Um, it's, an, it's an incredible story, but the underlying thread of that story um, is about this sense of these cultural norms, that, this, that, that there is kind of an American way of being, uh, and that whether you're talking about a Bangladeshi or, you know, in my case, a Chinese way, um, that kind of more broadly uh, in Asia, this, this sense of um, communitarianism, mutualism, responsibility uh, to history and to others um, is real. And so the Chinese-American way that I posit is basically the fusion of the best of these, right? What if we took the inventiveness and entrepreneurial spirit 
the ability to um, imagine in ways that uh, aren't constrained necessarily by history, took all of that from uh, uh, the American way and fused that uh, with the aspects of the Chinese way that are about creating community, that are not just about every man for himself, that are about um, situating ourselves in a context and a history and a sense of belonging uh, that all of us, actually particularly those of us who grew up in this country, feel like we are missing in our lives, that sense of being part of something greater than oneself. Right? And so there are a couple people I write about in the book who embody this Chinese-American way. Um, one most famously, perhaps, is Maya Lin, the, the great architect, the, the public artist, uh, created the Vietnam Memorial, of course, right? Uh, and, and many other, actually, she's sort of built a career on building public monuments, um, uh, civil rights and, um, uh, you know, Lewis and Clark, um, all these kind of monuments and sculptures and um, uh, formations of land that are meant to kind of mark um, signal American uh, experiences, right? And she brings to all of that work this, um, you know, iconoclasm. You may remember she was a 20-year-old Yale undergraduate when she uh, won the competition to do the Vietnam Memorial, and she came under incredible criticism. You know, people hated it at first, this ugly black gash of a monument created by some... Wanting big, you know, heroic... Oh, they wanted something heroic, and, 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 and she'd created this little black gash, and who was this Asian person doing this, you know, thing? And she, it was an insult to, to real Americans, right? And she withstood that. She withstood that both with a, an individual American iconoclastic artist sense of, I know what my vision was, uh, but also with the kind of inner calm... Um, that, uh, you know, the way her Chinese-American family had raised her of, um, I also know where this, play, where this idea is situated in history. Um, another example, again, in these parts, uh, any ever been to Las Vegas, uh, you may um, know that downtown Vegas is undergoing a really interesting uh, revitalization right now. Uh, and that's the doing in great measure of a guy named Tony Shea. Tony Shea is the CEO of Zappos.com, the giant um, started out selling shoes emporium that... Uh, uh, Amazon bought for billion or something like that, and uh, and Tony decided to spend 300 million of his uh, gains um, uh, uh, to revitalize downtown Vegas, uh, where his uh, uh, where he also moved his company headquarters. They'd been in Henderson, Nevada, outside of Vegas, and he saw this dilapidated, forgotten kind of corner of that city um, that people don't think about. It's kind of vintage Vegas, right? Um, and he saw an opportunity. Um, not only to move his company there, but to create out of that civic and literal desert a real community. Uh, and so he's, invest he's kind of doing sort of Aspen Ideas Festival. He's bringing artists and interesting innovators and entrepreneurs and you know, trying to attract the creative class to revitalize this place. And he's doing it with all of these rituals of what we're doing here, breaking bread together, doing things together, experiencing art together. Um, and he is... You know, I mean, he's a, you know, he's a dot-com gazillionaire, uh, iconoclastic, a classic American, uh, who's building a community in, you know, what I sense uh, to be very Chinese ways, right? Uh, not let's do a suburban subdivision and let everybody have their little plot and not know each other, but let's build from scratch, you know, as if they were building Plymouth Colony, right? A community that is intentional and that has a civic ethos and even some measure of a spiritual sense of, we're going to do something together here that's going to change our city and our country, right? Um, that, to me, is a Chinese-American way. And, and I think there are, uh, to me, it's exciting to see these things arise. And 
uh, and again, back to the question of, is America going to be able to take advantage of this, right? Uh, because in a lot of the American corporate workplace, a Chinese style of being, which is maybe less sticking yourself out there, less confrontational, um, less uh, drawing attention to oneself, um, doesn't necessarily get you promoted up the ranks, right? Um, some of you may have read the wonderful best-selling book by Susan Cain a couple years ago called Quiet about the power of introverts, right? There's a whole section in that book where she's making the case for, hey, introversion, introversion is good, right? And she's showing all the ways in which American institutions need to value introversion more. Well, there's a whole section in that book about Asian and Chinese Americans uh, and how so many Chinese Americans have so much to bring to the table but so often get overlooked uh, because on the kind of extroversion, introversion spectrum, their styles are seen to be um, more quiet, more inward-looking, less kind of thrust yourself out there, right? We will win as a country, again, to the extent that um, when we're in positions to look for talent and to cultivate that talent, that we don't just look at the shiny, loud, brash people who are out there saying, me, 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 uh, but that we look to people, Chinese-Americans, for instance, uh, who will often bring to the table a quiet style uh, and a style that, uh, um, you know, has, uh, that, that has assets and power um, that will be visible only if you give it a moment to, uh, to search for them. So uh, I, I think that um, idea of a Chinese-American way, um, uh, you know, is something that is really, at the end of the day, about reinventing the American way. Let's talk a little bit about conveying that Chinese-American way through a generation. You, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about raising your daughter, uh, third-generation Chinese-American, uh, I guess half-ethnically Chinese. Um, how do these attitudes play out in that context? And I, I mentioned before, I have to ask you, you know, about the, the tiger parenting. And now, you know, after that book, there are many people who think that defines what it means to be a Chinese parent. Yeah. And are, are, you, are you a tiger dad? I don't know what the taxonomical exact opposite of a tiger is, but I'm that. You know, so... Uh, uh, pussycat, or uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I, I'm I, a puppy dog. A puppy dog. Uh, uh, no, I'm not totally the opposite, but I'm quite not a tiger parent. Um, I, and um, let me say a word just about how I'm raising my daughter, uh, uh, but then more broadly, this phenomenon that we're, we're talking about here. Um, you know, my the way that I parent is shaped in part by the way that my parents parented, and my parents were quite atypical. Uh, first-generation Chinese immigrant parents. They were extremely laissez-faire. Um, they didn't make me. They didn't make me do a thing. Honestly, um, they, when they saw that I got interested in something, whether it was baseball or drawing or music, um, they poured it on. They 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 got me exposure to teachers and so on and so forth, and took me to museums and all that kind of stuff. But um, but they didn't make me do a thing. Uh, and uh, I think that, in turn, if you think back another generation, uh, is partly my mother's own influence. She, she had been raised in uh, war-torn China uh, by a, uh, a father. Uh, her father uh, was a professor uh, and a professor of European uh, history and, and philosophy. Uh, and this was uh, during the early 20th century at a time when uh, people like him, Chinese intellectuals who'd been exposed to the West, um, were really trying to figure out how to revitalize a sick, broken, uh, collapsing China, right? They were part of what's called the May 4th movement uh, of, of reformers. Uh, and so 
he was very much um, you know, of this view of um, we need to look to the West. Um, there's so much about China that's sick and static and we need to shed it. Um, and Confucianism is stultifying and it's cramping our style and everything. And so my mom, you know, in school, she read all the Chinese classics, but she, because my dad also grew up reading translations of, you know, uh, Russian novels uh, and things like that. And so she was formed in a way that was already kind of hybridized. Uh, and so she comes to the United States and raises me in a way that's kind of, um, you know, to the extent that it was intentional, it was hybridized, but mainly unintentional, right? Um, so fast forward to me. Um, in some ways, actually, um, relative to my mom, uh, I'm a little less laissez-faire. Um, uh, and as a second-generation dad raising, as you say, a third-generation child who is only half ethnically Chinese, I've become, you know, now in my 40s, quite attuned in ways that, uh, you know, I suppose people of my parents' age could have predicted. Now I'm suddenly like, holy cow, there's something to preserve here. Um, holy cow, this stuff that I didn't pay as much attention to when I was a kid. I hated going to Chinese school, right? It was just torture. Like, n n you know, I have a line in the book that, you know, th those who ignore Chinese school are doomed to repeat it, right? <laughs> and so I'm doomed now to repeat it with my daughter um, and force her to try to go to Chinese school. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I've been really trying very hard to um, expose her to enough of a foundation of Chineseness. Um, she hated Chinese school. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike Amy Chua, um, I didn't, you know, lock her in a room and set her stuffed animals on fire. Uh, um, uh, I, uh, I said, okay, let's make a deal, right? You can either keep going to this Chinese school you hate on weekends, uh, or you can get a tutorial from me every week. Uh, and I kind of thought actually offering that would make her see the virtues of going to Chinese school, uh, but she took the deal. Uh, so for the last five years, you know, most Tuesday afternoons, um, she'll gripe, she'll whine, she'll complain, but then we sit down and for 90 you know, minutes, two hours, um, we're doing Chinese, right? And, uh, and it's slow going and, and it's just once a week, but I'm, my goal is to lay a foundation, right? A foundation of language. Uh, and she's got that foundation. She has things that, you know, you, it's, it, you learn when you're trying to teach a young person the language, all the things about language that are not about language, which is to say, she understands the, the way that Chinese, that Mandarin Chinese is constructed grammatically, um, uh, and I won't go into kind of uh, linguistic detail, but it, it, the structure of the language itself suggests the relational um, ways that I was describing Chinese people see, see themselves and see things, right? It's not subject, uh, verb, object, the way we do English sentences, you know? It, it, it's very kind of set in context. And there are very few prepositions. You have to figure things out by context, right? Everything in Chinese is contextual, right? Uh, and where Americans love to look at the shiny, bright thing in the foreground, Chinese, by their language, by the way that they think, see the context, right? And that's, um, that, that's something that I'm trying to I I instill with her. Um, as to the larger phenomenon of tiger parenting, um, you know, I actually think the... Um, and. You know, when Amy Chua wrote her, uh, her book, uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, um, and she got both popularized and demonized as this kind of, th this otherworldly phenomenon, really, right? This insane parent who would, you know, you know, lock their kids in the room unless they practiced six hours. I wasn't kidding. Set their kids' stuffed animals on fire uh, as punishment. Uh, you know, do all these things. Uh, here's the thing about tiger parenting. Yeah, actually, two, two, two observations I would make. Uh, number one, 
Um, if any of you have read the actual book, uh, um, you'll see that in the final like quarter of the book, uh, Amy Chua comes, in fact, to regret the way that she'd been a tiger parent, and comes to see the cost uh, of that. But, of course, that wasn't what got uh, uh, popularized in the media. Uh, which brings me to the second point about it, which is what got popularized in the media to me was a, an instance of a great big American cultural Rorschach test, right? In this period of anxiety, the sense, this age where we sense that we're slipping, right? Where Americans are getting soft, where we don't have the rigor and the discipline and the vigor that we used to have, where we can't just get things done. Uh, and, who, and you look around and you think, wow, they're getting it done over in China, right? They're putting on opening Olympic ceremonies that are so efficient and kind of effective, it's kind of scary, right? They're doing it like, you know, in all these ways. And, and so we attribute to China um, this capacity for godlike, machine-like ability to dominate and take over, right? Uh, and I think the whole phenomenon of elevating tiger parenting into this thing and all these American parents wondering, am I not doing enough as a parent? Am I, do I need to be more like that? Do I need to be harsh in that way? Um, was partly about parenting, but it was also partly about national anxiety about relative decline, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think, again, you see these little things, and you have to kind of read them in a couple of levels, right? Let, let, <clears throat> let me come back to one final comment or question and then, and then open it, it up. Uh, and that is something, as I said at the beginning, to me, this book is as much, if not more, about America than it is about China. And one of the things that you celebrate and think that America needs to emphasize even more is the very fact that it is perhaps uniquely a place where people can come from another country and become American and aspire to anything. And then when you think of China, I mean, I think, you know, my father was an immigrant to this country. And I think, you know, if he had gone to China and I had learned Chinese, I resided there my whole life, born there, uh, develop Chinese mores. I don't think there's any the, the foggiest chance, a Chinaman's chance, <laughs> that that I would have the opportunities that I've had in this country. And to me, thinking of the American dream in reverse for someone who's not ethnically Chinese to go to China as an immigrant and to succeed and 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 have confidence in the ability to succeed is just not. It's not fathomable. Am I wrong? Uh, you are not wrong. Um, <laughs> you, you are absolutely right. But, but in being right, um, what you're saying is not a, a cause for us to kind of reach over and pat ourselves on the back, no. right? Uh, what it is is a charge. It is a charge for us to keep something that, that is, I think, exceptional about this country. We are exceptional not necessarily in fact. We are exceptional in promise. We are exceptional in potential, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, I don't care how big China's GDP gets. I think America will remain indispensable and exceptional if, if we keep on capitalizing upon this wide open cultural operating system that we have in this country. If we remain open to immigration, if we remain open to uh, the hybridization and fusion and synthesis of cultural styles and norms and memes uh, that we've uh, long had in this country. Um, and, you know, and the simplest way that I put it uh, in the book is that um, you know, the, the difference is that America makes Chinese Americans. China does not make American Chinese. And it doesn't want to. It's not even remotely interested in it, right? So not, not, not only is it the case, Elliot, that you know, had you been you know, sent over and, and raised in China, that you would probably have net less opportunity 
to be your fullest you and to have your fullest, forget about just economic opportunity, but to be, to realize your fullest potential. But even if I, right now, were to get, you know, brush up, get totally fluent in Chinese, you know, reread my history, know my Chinese art and paintings, you know, and decide, you know what, I'm done with America. I'm pulling up stakes and I'm going to be, I'm going to go to China, right? Even I would not be fully understood ever or accepted as Chinese, right? It's just not in their way. And, I mean, that, that's both a matter, literally, of, um, uh, of their nationality law. Um, you know, the, 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 I, I think, you know, since the year 2000, something like 700 people have become naturalized citizens of the People's Republic of China. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think th that is, like I say, it's not in their operating system. It's not in their civilizational mindset, right? Uh, it's hard enough to be non-Han Chinese in China to be Tibetan, for instance, that's the most obvious example, but to be uh, of some of these other ethnic minorities in China that are often unknown to Westerners, right? It's hard enough to be, to be that, right? Let alone to be an immigrant from another uh, country altogether. And I think this is a thing that, you know, when you, re when you realize that, America makes Chinese Americans, China doesn't make American Chinese, that's our competitive advantage if we're smart enough to sustain it, if we're smart enough to pour it on and leverage it, right? Uh, and, and one of the things that, um, uh, that I worry about in our environment, because we're in economically challenging times, we're in an age of severe radical inequality and concentration of wealth and opportunity, we're in a period where the idea of the American dream is under more strain than it's been under uh, in, in three quarters of a century, right? Um, it, in times like these, not only is there kind of scapegoating of people who don't look like the norm, you know, that, that always happens, but there's also this sense of retreat and close, isolate, close minds, close borders, close hearts, right? This is the time where we have to commit to ourselves to double down on American openness, to double down on our capacity to blend and fuse uh, and merge in these ways. And, um, uh, and, you know, it's why I said uh, at the start and would say right now again, I mean, to the extent that Chinese Americans um, uh, can thrive in this country, uh, that will be a pretty good bellwether and measure for whether America uh, is thriving. Uh, and, you know, I, I tell the story in the book of my uncles, um, who like my, uh, my, my father's brothers, my father was one of six brothers, uh, and their father's name uh, in Chinese is uh, Liu Guoyun. Uh, Liu is the family name. Uh, Guoyun means basically deliverance of the nation. Right, so you know, no pressure. Right, just, uh, 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 and, and so my my father and his brothers were raised with the sense of, you know, you need to be part of the destiny of a country. You need to serve. You need to contribute. You need to be be, you know, as as big as you can. Right, uh, and so they all emigrated to the United States, and they all came here seeking opportunity. And um, one by one, during the during the eighties, um, they started to feel that they had hit glass ceilings here. They started to feel that. There wasn't as much opportunity. They looked over to Taiwan, which was resurging, one of the Asian tigers. And they looked over to China, which began to rise. And they thought, you know what? We might be able to do better going back. And so one, then two, then three of the brothers went back. And they've stayed there, right? And I look at that, and they've had incredible success and opportunity in Taiwan. And you can say, that's awesome for the Liu family. And indeed, you know, their father's name was, in a sense, redeemed, and they have helped deliver upon their country. But I, as an American born here, look at that story and look at the course of action that my uncles took, and I think that's a failure. That is a failure of my country. 
That is a failure of my country to not have been able to hold them and be magnetic enough and have opportunity enough and have institutions that were open enough to their styles of leading and being and acting uh, that people could see that they should have huge opportunity here uh, and, and, and make it here, right? Uh, so uh, our job, all of us, um, whether you're Chinese uh, uh, or not, is to make sure that uh, uh, going forward, uh, we, we make sure that everybody has uh, way more than a Chinaman's chance of opportunity. Friends, let's, o let's open it up. We have time for questions, and I think we, if, do we have a microphone? No microphone, so I'll repeat the question because we're audio taping this. For so any of your friends who you think would like to have, uh, like to hear this, you can uh, listen later. Please, question. Is there a microphone? No, there's no microphone. Um, my name is Preben. Uh, you can speak a little louder. Okay, so you can... My name is Preben. I'm from Belgium, and in the beginning of my process to immigrate to the United States, first of all, I thank the Aspen Institute for putting the topic of immigration on uh, the agenda. It's very important. And I'm um, a graduate in international relations. And now, now I will mention very briefly, try to, why it's important to, to put it on the agenda. Because it relates to power. And power is one of the central topics in international relations. And... Make um, paper, we don't, if you could just yes, ask a question, it's, it's please. It's really important. It's yeah, but if it's more, short, because okay, other people I, I, have I, questions, I too. Best. I do my best. Just a question, please. The, the success of America is to have a, uh, a good immigration policy, and it helped America to uh, to keep its values uh, dominant. And I think that's the essence of what America should do right now. So on the other hand, I, I recommend people to buy your book and to listen to migrants. But on the other way, on the other hand, I am concerned, not concerned, but I hope that America sticks to the migration policy that it had, which was part of it, its success and which explains why others who failed to have such a more strict, if I could use that word, uh, migration policy, uh, which is why they failed. I, I th um, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you. Preben. Another question. Yes, Anand. So, so our grandkids are here 100 years from now in this restaurant, Aspen Idea Festival. Walter is still running the entire <laughs> Scenario number two, there's a panel on how did the Chinese miracle never materialize and why is the U.S. still on top? How would these countries kind of have to play their hand? What would result in each of these two scenarios? The question for those of the people listening is essentially looking 100 years from now and imagining two panels at the Aspen Institute, one with American continued in ascendancy and the other with China not developing as, as expected. Um, it's a great, great question. I think, you know, the, 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 it, what would have to happen in, in the United States, let me start there. Um, if you imagine the panel where 100 years from now we are still um, the world's indispensable nation, right? Um, and the Chinese miracle, as you say, never quite uh, fully came to fruition and China didn't uh, displace the United States. Um, how that would have come to pass would have been two things. N number one, uh, as we're saying here, um, the United States uh, w would have uh, continued um, in its policies and in its, uh, forget about law, just in its norms, 
um, continue to be um, uh, open and inclusive uh, to talent and ability from the rest of the world, right? Um, uh, you know, the, the simple idea that America can take on the rest of the world because America is the rest of the world um, only works if America is the rest of the world, right? Um, uh, and, and, um, and that scenario would also have unfolded uh, because China, uh, you would have come to recognize um, for all of the throw weight that it has, having 1.3 billion people, um, and all of the amazing kind of gains that they've made from poverty to where they are today um, with central command and control, uh, hit a ceiling. And that ceiling is the, is the ceiling that is hit um, when you try to take large, complex, adaptive systems and societies and try to control them centrally with a single idea or a single um, viewpoint. Uh, and that at a certain point, China could no longer scale that. And they could no longer adapt to change externally, and they could no longer adapt to change internally. The turmoil of migration within, the wide inequality within their country, um, the, the, the kind of splitting uh, geographically and ethnically and otherwise uh, of what is in many ways uh, a, a very um, uh, you know, strangely built uh, uh, empire, um, that those things would not have helped um, and that China would have hit its ceiling. The flip scenario uh, would, you know, where, where they do win and we do uh, slip uh, it would not just be the inverse of what I said, uh, but would be also this, where China learned to be more American than America. <clears throat> right? um, Howard Gardner, who um, is a, one of our speakers here at the festival this week, uh, who I, I recommend you go here, um, uh, has written a lot. He's a great education um, uh, theorist and has written a lot about the ways in which, you know, in interesting ways right now, at precisely the time where American public education is, in a sense, becoming more Chinese, more drill-oriented, more test-oriented, more kind of seemingly meritocratic winnowing, right, and leaving a lot of people behind but giving great gains to the few who win. Um, at the very same time that that is happening, China is trying to make their education system more like ours. They're trying to figure out how do we teach people to be more creative, to not just be great test takers, to value not just kind of liberal, liberal to, arts. to value liberal arts and to value imagination and failure. Um, you, know, in, you know, if they figure out how to do what we've always been good at and we forget it, that's how we're going to get there. We have time, I think, just for maybe two more questions. <clears throat> uh, my, my, my question, I'm, I'm highly in favor of immigration, and I think that immigrants have done a tremendous amount for the culture productivity of America. I'm wondering, nice. economically, can America afford to take so many immigrants? Should, they, should it be restricted? Who is going to be responsible for paying for, you know, if you get a flood of a million immigrants from China that can't afford to take care of themselves, uh, can we afford to pay for them? Should there be restrictions? What are, what are your ideas on that? Uh, that's a, the question is about immigration and whether, um, you know, even if you're bought into the idea that openness is better, um, can we afford um, you know, a great uh, continuing influx of immigrants uh, in this country. Um, th that's, a, that's a whole other lunch topic, uh, but, but, but I'll, you know, say briefly, um, you bet we can. Uh, and, I, and I mean it in two ways. Uh, I mean it like in the here and now, um, fears that immigrants uh, uh, are, are a uh, drain uh, on the coffers of our society are uh, overblown and in many cases just outright wrong. Uh, even undocumented immigrants, even the 11.5 million undocumented immigrants right now uh, are paying billions 
uh, tens of billions of dollars every year uh, in taxes uh, to our country. Uh, they, they are here working, they are here contributing and so forth in, in the here and now. But, um, but put aside the here and now. Think, and, and not even 100 years, but think 20 years from now, right, uh, about the ways in which um, the, these immigrants, by getting rooted here, uh, by getting opportunity here, uh, by going to school here, by creating businesses here, uh, by uh, getting skilled up here, uh, are going to be part of the generative engine uh, of the American uh, innovation economy, right? And, uh, and that's true not only for kind of high-end immigrants who are super educated when they come here already, but for everybody. Uh, and I think the, the thing that we've got to worry about, and I know this is another thread throughout the festival, um, is less about immigrants, uh, you know, and kind of taking this kind of narrow focus on, oh gosh, immigrants are taking our stuff, and more widen the lens to, again, we are in an age of radical, severe inequality uh, in this country. Uh, and there are structural policy reasons why that has come to pass. Uh, and we've got to do some things to remedy that. Um, immigration will be a subsidiary part of that conversation. Uh, but I think if we believe in the American dream, um, we've got to take seriously the much bigger question of reckoning with inequality. Yes. I've been to the Confucius Institute for Chinese Lessons. And I think it's a great institution been criticized, but uh, also the Sister Cities program between the U.S. and America. What do you think of, of those types of strategies and other strategies for increasing American pluralism and reducing American xenophobia? Um, so the, the, the question was about um, uh, Confucius Institutes, which some of you may have heard of. The Chinese government uh, over the last bunch of years has been setting up these institutes in different uh, cities, mainly around campuses in the United States. Um, you can kind of think of them as friendly cultural outposts, right? You know, we want to teach you Chinese language. We want to teach you some Chinese history and, you know, open to all comers. Um, and um, many people like yourself have been, uh, you know, happily taking advantage of that opportunity. Um, there's been an increase uh, uh, of suspicion uh, or like, hey, what's their agenda? Uh, in fact, if any of you, I, I commend to you a website, uh, Chinafile.com, um, spelled China file with an F, not PH. Uh, China file dot, dot, maybe dot org. Um, there's a great debate going on right now among um, a, a group of uh, uh, China experts about, about Confucius Institutes. Um, they, they are a modest effort uh, by the Chinese government to basically project soft power, right? Uh, to try to um, uh, uh, become less threatening and less strange to Americans by introducing more Americans to their culture. I, I think, you know, as far as that goes, I think that's great. Um, and, and the more we can, more that more Americans can learn about China, the better. Um, it actually is a reminder to me, back to where Elliot started, um, of again, why America has these great deep inherent advantages. America doesn't need to set up, you know, I don't know what you call them, you know, Lincoln Institutes or Franklin Institutes or Jefferson Institutes, you know, in other countries, right? We don't need to do that because our, our norms, our values, uh, uh, the, the language of our traditions um, are known already, right? The goddess of liberty at Tiananmen Square on June 4th, 1989 was a replica of the Statue of Liberty, right? So our iconography, our language and our values, um, you know, are already part of our soft power. Uh, and our job is just to make sure we're actually living up to those ideas and nurturing them here at home. Uh, and if we do that, 
um, we're, we're going to be just fine. I'm afraid I'm going to need to bring things to an end, but I want to make a couple of quick, quick comments and let you get back to the campus for those of you wanting to go to the next program. First of all, there are some books right here if any of you would like to buy them. Also, I think, Eric, you're going to be signing books and available to talk to people in the bookstore at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And I'm also delighted to say that uh, we'll be announcing at the Institute shortly, as a matter of fact, tomorrow afternoon, uh, that Eric is going to be joining the Aspen Institute to run a new program uh, focused on many of the issues we've discussed today uh, relating to creating a more engaged citizenship, citizenry in the United States, and particularly looking at the issues of citizenship and engagement and civic responsibility through the lens of the extraordinary inequality that we see in our country today. So you'll be seeing a lot more of Eric. Eric, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much. Elliot, thank you. That's great. That's really good.